Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. Welcome to this week's episode. Today I'm talking to Darren Colley, Managing Director at IraCroft, a supplier of metal pipe and tube fabricated products for a diverse range of industry sectors. As well as his role at IraCroft, Darren is also an ambassador for the Institute of Directors and sits on the Regional Advisory Board of Make UK. Darren is a self-professed, results-driven senior executive. As you'll hear, he has a great aptitude for organisational transformation, which includes identifying new business streams, reducing time to market, and minimising costs while boosting quality and client satisfaction. I therefore wanted to get him on the show to discuss his experience, but also to cover topics from what he learned from 22 years of military service, the value of not being afraid to ask, and the skill to getting people's buy-in, as well as the principles of strong leadership, enhancing staff satisfaction, and why he decided to complete an MBA. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Darren, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you, Warren. I'm excited about our conversation today. There's so much we're going to touch on, I'm sure. You've had 22 years of uh, military service and then success over a relatively short space of time in the commercial world. And I'm sure we'll come back to that military experience and what you learned from it in due course. But maybe for some context for our listeners, can you give us a, listeners an insight into you know, what you've done in the commercial world since leaving the military? Yes, okay. Um, so, uh, as you say, we'll come back to the military in a little while. But I realised um, before I left the military, I only had three O-levels. Um, so I had to do something. Um, I did an OU degree in environmental sciences before I left the military. Um, and I did, as part of my resettlement, uh, a Prince II uh, exam, foundation and practitioner, which is project management. Mm. I left uh, the military and uh, I was um, uh, enrolled into a Siemens project management course, um, which allowed me to then become the project manager supporting offshore platforms in the southern North Sea off of Great Yarmouth. Okay. Um, so I... Uh, I basically project managed all of the maintenance. If you imagine, if you go offshore, you have to take everything with you from nuts, washers, bolts, all the tooling. Yeah, because you, you can't just call on a van you can't go down, up with what you need. You can't go down to screw fix. <laughs> so, um, so I did that uh, for three years. That was my first civilian okay. job. Um, that got me used to working in a civilian environment, which yeah. f- coming from a military environment is very different. Yeah, I really, will, will, we will definitely discuss that adjustment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, uh, so that was uh, as part of a shell contract with Siemens. I then moved up to Aberdeen. I got promoted to run the contract between BP and Siemens. 
Um, so this is all the rotating equipment that BP had offshore that was Siemens related. Um, when I say uh, rotating equipment, I'm talking about gas turbines, okay. generators, gas compressors. So this is the compressors that suck the gas out of the North Sea, compress it and throw it onshore. Um, so that was a very exciting time, uh, supporting some platforms up in the southern, uh, up in the North North Sea. Um, got offshore a few times and yeah. saw how the guys live offshore, which isn't uh, a particularly friendly environment. Um, and then uh, uh, BP decided to award Dresser Rand um, some uh, some of the work that Siemens was doing um, on the conditions that Dresser Rand employed me as the contract manager. Okay. So. I swapped over to uh, Dresser Rand, uh, ran that contract again for probably 18 months, nearly two years. Uh, and then we had the oil and gas crash in 2015, yeah. uh, where oil fell, the price of oil fell through the floor. Um, so in a mad panic, me and the wife upstick to move from Aberdeen to Gloucester. Okay. Uh, where I took over as general manager of a uh, engineering facility belonging to Salza. Salza mm-hmm. are... Okay pump manufacturers based in Winterthur in uh, Switzerland. Um, They had bought a huge uh, workshop um, down in Bristol. Uh, So I had three P&Ls. I had the pump P&L. That was their service centre pump P&L. They had an electrical rewind shop, which was rewinding uh, electric motors. And uh, they had this big sort of heavy industrial uh, mechanical workshop. Um, set up mainly to overhaul the large rollers and other large pieces of equipment from Port Talbot. Unfortunately, when I got there, because obviously I hadn't done my due diligence mm. properly because it was a bit of a mad panic to get out of Scotland before we couldn't sell the house, um, I was there to close it up, right. turn the lights off. Um, there was uh, 90 people working there and obviously relied upon it for yeah. their, so, their income, their lives. Yeah, yeah. so I looked at this and I thought, ah, I'm sure that this has got potential. I'm sure that we can pull this around. So I went to the uh, headquarters, uh, which was in Birmingham at the time, um, of Salza, and said, look, give me a year and I'll turn it around. Let's keep it open. Okay. There's 16 service centres in the UK, and this is the worst performing service centre. You could understand why they wanted to shut it. I said, just give me a chance. They said, well, you've got eight months. So, <laughs> right, okay. Well, two-thirds of what you wanted. So I, I literally got back from that meeting to be told that Tata Steel at Port Talbot yeah. was going to sell sell up. So they were going to stop spending, which was 35% of our income. So that compounded the, uh, the, uh, the problem. So... I didn't really have a, a proper full, fully laid out plan. All I know is I bought some time for, mm, for, for the business to, to try. And, and I found myself about a month later over in uh, Galleons Reach, which is the um, the DLR, Docklands Light Railway, um, overhaul facility, servicing facility. And we used to uh, rewind some uh, motors that go underneath the seats for the heaters in the DLR. Okay. And as I went in, in the car park, there was just a mountain of bogies. So bogies are the things that hold the wheels onto the uh, train. Okay, yeah. So what's and I said to my and this is how lucky I was. So I was talking to my contact about the these um, uh, these motors, and I said, "What's happening with those bogies out there?" And just as I said that, the mechanical engineer was walking past the office, and it, and my contact said, "Ah, hold on, I'll ask." So he asked him, "Oh yes, these things are cracked." 
and we haven't got a repair scheme, um, so we're having to buy new ones off Bombardier, I think it was. Okay. So I said, well, what would you say if I said I could repair those? I didn't know if I could. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, um, well, it'd be brilliant. So anyway, I took the drawings back to uh, back to Avonmouth. And uh, yes, we won the contract to overhaul and repair these things. Very, very difficult because these things come in a, a group of three. So they bring the train in, jack yeah. the train up, rip these um, bogies off, strip them down, take the wheels off. They go off to be refurbished somewhere else. And then you've got 14 days before this train is then put back onto the bogies. So in 14 days, we had to bring them back from Galleon's Reach, get them into a, a spray shop in, uh, in Bristol, get them sandblasted, uh, fully NDT'd at yeah. our facility, crack mapped, welded up, back to the spray shop, sprayed, and then back to uh, wow. Galleon's Reach within 14 days. So we were actually sending these things back and they were still drying in the crates as they were going. We changed all of our processes. We took a load of uh, welders on. We built these big frames where you could bolt these things into and then you could turn them over and around yeah. so you could get to all See. the areas to to weld. And, uh, yeah, it, um, it brought in a huge amount of money. Yeah. I mean, a phenomenal amount of money. And just as all that happened, just as we started taking these in, Paul Talbot then came back online and said, oh, right, we've got all of this... Um, all of this work that we put off because we were going to close or we were going to shut, whatever, um, we need to catch up. So absolutely swamped. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because that, you know, that opportunity came from that inquisitive mind and just having co a conversation. Exactly, exactly. It was just luck. Um, Is it luck? Well, I suppose you make your own luck, don't you? Yeah. To a certain extent. If I hadn't asked, we wouldn't have got it. Yeah. Um, but as far as I'm aware, they're still doing them now. Okay. And this was uh, 2016. Okay. And uh, so uh, the, the my worst performing service centre became the second to best service centre in, wow. in a relatively uh, short period of time. Yeah, in two and a half years. Uh, so yeah, I was really, really pleased about yeah. that. That was really good. And what did you learn about yourself in that in that specific experience? I think, looking back on it, I think, don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. Don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself. So it, I'd, I hadn't promised that we could fix these, but mm. I said, look, we will have a look and if we can, you know. Yeah. Um, so I took all the information back um, and getting people's buy-in. So I took them back and, of course, my my team at the time said, well, we don't do this. We do rollers. I said, look, we've got to di diversify yeah, here. Do something different. Yeah. Otherwise, we're all going to be out of a job. Um, so getting them on board, talking them around. Yeah. How did you change that culture? Because there must have been a quite a negative culture at the time for it to be that bad. Poor yes. Yeah. It, it had been badly managed previously and yeah. all sorts. So um, it, it's having... It's having confidence in what you're doing and saying. Mm. So people will only follow you if you can be, if you have your, if you have gravitas, if you have the, um, the confidence that they believe in. Mm. And I've noticed that throughout my, my civilian career is you, you've got to be, you've got to be stable. You know, you can't yeah. have swings, mood swings. You've got to be nice and stable regardless of how bad things yeah. or, or good things are getting. Um, you've got to have that gravitas to be able to pull it off. Yeah. Um, you've got to have a good argument. 
Yeah. You know, you've got to, you know, you've got people, to have logic. Yeah, logic behind what you're trying to do. Um, and I think that's that's it, really. And in, yeah. how do you think that... Because that's interesting, isn't it? Because in the commercial world, you, the, you have to create followers, don't you? Because mm-hmm. and using, you know, and using all of those skills that you've outlined there. In the military... How does leadership change? Because typically, um, I've never served in the military, so mm-hmm. maybe you come from a place of ignorance here, is you'd expect people to be more akin to followers because they've joined the military for a purpose and a cause. So how have you seen like le- your leadership style need to change yeah. between the two? And how would you c- compare? Them so um, you're right, in the military, you're expected to be led. Yeah. Um, but there is still a certain amount of you, you get good and bad leaders within the military, yeah. and um, especially doing every walk of life. Every walk of life. Um, the people who expect respect and who expect to be leaders and aren't very good at it will fail in the military because they will not gain the uh, the following that they re- require. Yeah. So it's still it's not as um, black and white as possibly people think yeah. when they look into the military you still have to have a certain amount of skills yeah. leadership skills management skills to actually bring people along with you there does get to that point where you need complete and utter obedience when things are mm-hmm. really intense but day to day you need this you need this uh, uh, you still need to work at being a leader you can't just expect to be followed yeah um, and that will that will also tell in those times when things get really intense. People who have respect for the person that they're following will react a lot quicker than yeah. people who who have no respect for that yeah. particular yeah. leader. So, so it's not yeah. It's, uh, it has a lot of similarities. It is, has a lot of similarities. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when when under pressure, do you think it's easier to lead in the military? than in the commercial world because again in the in the commercial world everybody sort of retreats to their own place of safety quite possibly quite possibly but then i would i have never and i will never um experience the pressure of leadership in the civilian world that i've had to absolutely so so um yeah the, the you're right um, but there's there's two ways of dealing with that. So for COVID, for example. Yes. I, so I started at Aircroft six weeks before the first yeah. COVID. And that was your next role after? No, the... no, I went to um, Hydreco after Salza. Mm-hmm. So that was a... I purposely sought out a business that needed changing. So okay. Salza was my first business turnaround. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, so uh, my next role was in uh, as director of Hydreco. Now Hydreco were being sold out of a private equity com- uh, fund. Yeah. Um, so they obviously wanted to get the best price for it. So I had 18 months to really grow the business. Yeah. Um, and it, that was really interesting. So that was trying to get long-term contracts, getting the business packaged right yeah. so that we could sell it, being part of the sales process, interviewing potential buyers. Yeah. Um, that was a really interesting process. Uh, yeah, and we did. You know, I, I went out and got some large uh, MOD contracts at 25 years long. Which were ideal, you know. If you got yeah. those on the books, yeah. so um, the PE company got more money than they thought for the business, and yeah, yeah. that was that was success. And then that brought you to Aircroft. Aircroft, yes. Brought you down to Dorset. Yes, yeah. So, um, well, Hydreco was in Paul anyway. Oh, okay. 
Right. Um, so not uh, not too far to move. Uh, slightly different. Um, so Ira Croft um, belongs to uh, the daughters of the founder. So the founder is a guy called Tim Bamford, mm-hmm. who was the original JCB's brother. Okay. So they were brothers. Uh, Tim Bamford opened a business to supply his brother with hydraulic pipe work. Yeah. Um, he died, I think, in 1992 and left it to his daughters, and they've been our owners ever since. Um, I think long term they'll look at to, uh, to, to, to sell the business. Um, I can't speak for them, obviously, no, but... Uh, but they wanted somebody to come in and reinvigorate the business, yeah. um, which again sort of interested me. So yeah, and we've um, obviously we survived COVID. Yeah, well, that's where we sort of mm. took a diversion, yeah. didn't we? Yeah. So leading through COVID and leading, how that compared. Yeah. So usually when I I like to lead collaboratively. Yeah. You know, I like to use the the uh, the intelligence and the, the the people around me. They're they they're there to do their job. They know yeah. more about their job than I do. So why not allow them to flourish and, and get get on yeah. with what they want to do? Um, but sometimes, uh, and COVID was uh, a good example. Nobody's got any experience of that. No. So you've start you've got to we're make all some blind. We're, we're all blind. So somebody's got to start making some decisions. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, a little bit of a departure from what I usually do. So it's very sort of autocratic, right? This is what we're going to do. This is yeah. how many people we're going to furlough and this is how we're going to bring them back and um and then just using that time um the whole of the sort of summer of 2020 uh me and my team just constantly having meetings around right what do we need to do with the business you know how can we reset the business how can we best use this time to look at processes and all that sort of stuff so we actually came back from covid a lot stronger than we went into it okay it gave you that time to stop reflect adjust yeah and sort of hit the reset button really Mm. um we did we did stay open throughout the whole of the uh the pandemic um we were lucky enough um that um there's a company just up the road from us who build hospital beds chairs Mm. screens they couldn't cope because they'd won all of the uh, Nightingale Hospital uh, contracts, sure. uh, which meant we were key workers so we could stay open. Yeah. Um, so what we did was we ro- rotated uh, the workforce yeah. back through. You know, we'd, we'd bring them in for three weeks, then put them back onto furlough, bring another lot in, just to keep everybody engaged, make sure everybody was confident that they had some yeah. somewhere to come back to after all of this had finished. If it did finish, we you yeah. know, obviously we didn't know at the time. Um but yeah, some of the decisions that I had to make then were very autocratic. And it was yeah. right, this is what we're going to do. But that's that's about good leadership, isn't it? Changing your style to sit, fit the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that Ex- reflects too. Exactly. I, I, I do get asked a lot, especially having been in the military, you know, what's your leadership style? My leadership style is always very situational. It's yeah. what, what situation are we in yeah. that dictates of how you lead through that. Yeah, definitely. And greatest challenges, you know, putting COVID to one mm-hmm. side, faced um, in terms of Ironcroft and the role you're in now? Um, so, yeah, I think, um, again, uh, a culture, it's a 50-year-old business. Yeah. We have people that have been at the business for 50 years. Um, 
seen a lot of MDs come and go. <laughs> so here comes another one. <laughs> yeah, here comes another one. He's going to bring his new broom in and all of that. So, yeah, it's all about getting people on side. It's about, as we talked about, sort of being uh, truthful, being honest, um, being uh, steady in how you deal with people. Uh, yeah, and I think... The culture is always the most difficult thing to change in a business. You can change processes, you can change the PL and all of that, but actually to change the way people see the work that they're doing and yeah. how you know how important they are. So yeah, we've done a lot of work around that. And how have you changed the culture from you know, what was it and what is it now and where would you like it to be? Yeah, so <clears throat> we we started off a bit on the back foot really. Uh, obviously we had COVID yeah. to deal with, but when we came back it was obvious that we had to change what we were doing as a management team to try and get people more engaged. Mm. So all the way through COVID, every week I would do a Teams broadcast to the whole of the all of the employees, telling them how we were getting on, giving them an update of any of the COVID regulations that were coming out, just to try and keep people engaged. Um, and we've sort of built on that. So um, we have um, we have a works council. We're not unionised, but we have a yeah. works council. So we we constantly in contact with them about you know what they want us to do um, one of the big things that came out of um, covid was that um, people wanted to go on to a four-day week okay and now, how many team members have you got so um in in total in the business we've got now 280 people wow okay uh, when i started we had 165 so you've gone through dramatic growth oh yeah yeah we've we've um half the size of the business again Okay. So we've gone from fourteen to twenty one million. But you had this desire for a four day week. Yeah, it was it was um it was brought to us by the shop floor. <clears throat> so we looked at it and we thought, how can we do that? So what we've done is the shop floor do their thirty eight hours a week, but in four days. So okay. they do four long days. We found we used to work four and a half days. And we found that the Friday morning, by the time the guys came in, set the machines up, had the coffee, talked about what they were going to do for the weekend, it was yeah. time to tear the machines down and all go home. So we were losing some efficiency there. Um, the guys wanted, you know, they, they understood that that, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, morning, that Friday morning was not really yeah. effective for them. So we put them onto a four-day week where they do their 38 and a half hours. Um, and we get a huge uptick in overtime on a Friday. So we pay overtime on a Friday, time and a half. Okay. So the guys get the opportunity to earn more. They still get their full weekend. Yeah. Um, obviously, as any business, you will always get people that will work all hours God sends. You know? yeah. um, but what we've done is the office staff, because obviously we still have customers that work on a Friday. Yeah. So my office staff do four and a half days. Okay. But we don't off open the office on a Friday. People work from home because after... COVID, yeah. everybody's got laptops. Okay. Um, and we also, for the office staff, we say that everybody's got to be in it on a Tuesday. Yeah. And then my team pick what other day of the week they want their team yeah. in. Um, there are certain roles, like engineering, quality, have to be in all the time when yeah. the shop floor's in. Uh, but we can adjust for that. But it gives us a nice... I was, I was, I was afraid that if we went to a four-day week on the shop floor, we'd end up with an us and them type thing. Yeah, which thing. is in a manufacturing engineering entity. Yeah. That is a constant battle. So so with the with the office staff, if they say, well, look, the shop floor is only doing four days a week, and I say, well, yes, but you're you're doing four and a half, but you're working from home two days a week yeah. or two, two and a half days a week. They haven't got the opportunity to do that. And, of course, the, on the flip side from the shop floor, 
you know, the office staff get to work from home two days yeah. a week. Well, yeah, but they're working four and a half days. You're only working four. So, yeah. you and know. how have you, and it, has it had a, because it's quite, um, you know, mm. from engineering manufacturing business, that's quite a transition, isn't it? There's a lot of creative professional services type mm-hmm. businesses moving towards that four day a week model. Mm-hmm. But I've heard of very few manufacturing businesses doing it. Has it, you know, what have the benefits been? Are you able to recruit more people? Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah, so there's a lot of benefits. So, yeah, recruitment is one. Yeah. Retention, quality of life for the people. You know, if they only want to work four days and they want three days off, they get a lot, you know. Um, There are some downsides that if anybody is thinking about doing this, I'd I'd watch for. Um, The first one is you can only run two shifts, days and nights, because you haven't got long enough days to run three shifts. Okay. So you can't do three eight-hour shifts. You can only do two 12-hour shifts because of the length of the days. Yes. Um, so that's a bit of a problem. If you've got expensive capital equipment, you run the risk of not using it three yeah. days a week. You're kind of underutilizing it. So you're not sweating your assets. Um, so that can be a problem. Most of our assets are sort of weld kits and all that, yeah. which aren't, you know, we don't need to sweat so much. Um so there are, there are a couple of downsides that you should be aware of. Yeah. Uh, but overall, from a, a staff uh, satisfaction point of view, yeah. You know, and it was it was the that was the moment when we started to see, or we had a plan of how to change the culture. So that was that been on the table from the Works Council for about the last four years. Yeah. So we looked at it, said, right, can we make this work? Well, this is obviously of you know real importance. Well, yeah. Um, and then. From then on, it's all been around staff communication. Yeah. So we have uh, our um, uh, a very very good staff newsletter called the Pipeline. Okay. Um, that my uh, my commercial manager um, puts out once a month. Uh, it welcomes all the new people. It it has anniversaries yeah. on it. It if uh, we have been running um, a, a meet the team type thing, so we've been asking people to give us their whole life story it started off with me obviously and yeah. it's gone all the way through and we're still running those um any sort of social events that's happened um me and some guys did a, a tour of the southwest on motorbikes a couple of weeks ago that's going to go in this edition so yeah. it's all things like that just keeping people okay. engaged cool. and it's interesting isn't it because we all think in the, this modern world this technology world that we've got to do things fresh new and innovative but sometimes that stuff around Actually, a lot of the time around employee engagement, mm-hmm. it's some of the I'd call old school stuff, like Absolutely. newsletters and like just proper communication mm-hmm. that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. I mean, one of the big differences we made, we, uh, we've got tea and coffee machines throughout the business. And um, when I got there, it was subsidised, but you still needed 10p. Okay. Uh, and we came back from COVID, who has cash on them? And it was like, <laughs> this is ridiculous, just make them free. Yeah. You know, and it costs us, I think, seven grand extra a year. It's nothing. It's incidental, isn't it? And, um, you know, it's things like that. It's it's things like um, the vending machines that we've got. Um, We change them all to swipe cards. Yeah. Again, because nobody's got any cash. You know, and it's just those things. We we started um, at the, uh, I think, about midway through 2021, we started what we called our people project. So what I wanted... us to do is understand from the time the guy turns up to the car park or the lady and does their work and gets back into the car what's their journey what's their day like what's Mm. follow them around look at what they're doing look at what is niggling them um and uh you know how can we change that 
Yeah. And that was the vending machines and the coffee. And, it's a good know. way of thinking about it, Jenny. What, what's the irritants in the day? Type exactly, thing? exactly. It's not it just 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 watch what these people are doing and seeing, get talking to them, asking them. I mean, you get some ridiculous ones. You know, I want to get paid. You know, fifty pounds an hour. Well, yeah, <laughs> but a lot of it is all around just engaging with people and understanding what their needs are yeah. and why they are coming into work. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't want people just to come into work just because they had to. No. I wanted people to come into work because they wanted to talk to their mates. I want to give them time to talk to their mates. I want them to have a bit more of a social yeah, time. Definitely. And so it is sometimes, it's just those little, right, it's always mm. usually, it's those, in terms of client service, employee engagement, yep. it is those little things, isn't it, that Absolutely. make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And. Where's the growth come from then? Because I assume turnover is, you know, growing mm. in the same ratio as employees and... You've yeah, sort of, you know. yeah. So the growth, um, basically, when I joined, our relationships with our customers and our suppliers was not very good. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time rebuilding relationships with our customers, rebuilding relationships with our suppliers. And um, it's come, it's organic growth. We haven't done, we haven't taken any new work on. Okay. It is purely just more of what we were doing. We we opened a paint line, um, which was all over LinkedIn, a powder coating paint line, because in 2020, we, we identified that our customers, especially JCB, um, take a lot of what they call structural tube work. So this is grab handles, roll cages, things that hold the mud guards on. It's all tube, all has something welded on the end, which is you know what we excel at. It just doesn't carry fluid. Yeah, but the majority of that is powder coated. We plate all of the all of the hydraulic tubes, so we opened a, a one point five million pound paint line to start building um, structural tube work. We haven't opened it yet because we've been that busy. We haven't got the capacity to actually build <laughs> it. We've got JCB queuing up to give us work, right. st- structural work. So we are just going all out to in, uh, employ people and get people in and we're, we're going to take possibly take over a new building and yeah okay and how are you overcome because i mean a lot of people listening to this podcast will see that they could have growth in their business but they can't you know, recruit this mm-hmm. that you know that war on talent kind of still ongoing uh, post covid um you've you know by the sounds of it you're still restricted you still want to mm-hmm. employ more people there's still more opportunity but you have succeeded in Recruiting. What yep. do you think you've done differently to perhaps others? Okay, um, so we, uh, traditionally we've been a minimum wage business. We're not anymore. Okay, uh, so we've re rejigged the pay scales to ensure that um, we're not in that position. Uh, we've opened our welding academy. Okay, so <clears throat> we originally um, we would either uh, recruit. Um, qualified welders or we'd take people on as apprentices and teach them how to weld the uh, a welding apprenticeship takes minimum 32 36 weeks something like that so last year we experimented and we just took some people in um, got one of our top welders to teach yeah. them and see if we could actually teach them to weld to our standard we all they get is a certificate from Irocroft yeah. saying what they've done this is no sort of Formal outside qualification. qualification it's like a company approval um, and we found that we could um, so we opened uh, part of uh, one of our buildings um, as our World Academy. We took six people in um, at the beginning of January this year with the expectation that it would take us three months to, 
get them yeah. to the point where we can put them into our production facility. Um, the first uh, tranche, which included uh, a guy who used to work in a bar, never picked up a welding torch before. None of these people had. So it starts off very simply. You know, this is the welding equipment. Yeah. This is the before use inspection, and it goes through a bit of the theory about it, but not too much. Uh, but it's all about hands-on skill. Um, and anyway, after eight weeks, they went into our uh, our production facility. So we did another tran- tranche of six. Um, they were equally as successful. And we're on the third tranche now, um, who are current uh, Ira Croft employees who want to go into welding. Okay, so, so they're they, going to make the transition and then you'll backfill their roles, which will be easier than, than the shortage. Exactly, exactly. And uh, the whole idea was that we would have this welding academy and then in September we would open it up for 12 apprenticeships. Yeah. Um, but what we've realised is actually we don't need that. We can bring people in, we can turn them around, we can get, make them into them skills. skills that we require in a much shorter space of time. We still run welding um, apprenticeships, but we run them down at uh, Paul and Bournemouth. Okay, so just stay with that. And it's interesting isn't it? because I think that's, uh, we've all got to think of different ways of bringing those skills mm-hmm. we need and the people we need into our businesses because they're not readily out there and there's not an expectation that's going to change anytime soon. So it's great to see those initiatives you've undertaken. You've also undertaken some personal development yourself yes yes and you completed an mba in 2016 so mm. during that course of some of those challenging roles that you had mm. you know what's the importance to you of personal development okay so uh, i made the decision to do an mba because i realized that actually somebody of my age mm. my peers yeah. have been in a commercial world for 30 35 40 years yeah 35 I'm not that old <laughs> um, but uh, of course having been in the army not in a commercial environment yeah. at all I, I I was lacking experience so I needed something to bring me up level with my peers yeah and the only way I could do that I can't you can't make experience so I had to do something else so it was the MBA route okay. that I did um, it um, it was a MBA based around oil and gas because at the time when I started it I was in Aberdeen. Okay. Um, midway through I had to move down to Gloucester. Yeah. So um, and uh, yes, it was a really really good course. It's really vocational. It really does. Mm. Um, yeah, if if anybody wanted a course to do that, I was really impressed. So I'm going to ask you two questions. Yeah. Do you wish you'd come out of military life? because 22 years of service is a proper mm-hmm. time served now with your experiences in the commercial world you wish you'd come out earlier I I often think I often think if I'd left the military earlier would I be more successful now yeah the thing is the military gave me a lot of the skills that I'm using now to be where I am now well, so it? yeah. I, and it's and it's it's no good looking backwards you know yeah. I, I, I'm glad I did what I did in the military I thoroughly enjoyed myself I got to see and do some yeah. incredible things um and it, it gave me the skills to do what i'm doing now so okay which leads on to my second question is you talk about okay i had to do my mba because i needed to skill up i needed to get some knowledge that mm-hmm. i didn't have mm-hmm. but what advantages do you think you now bring to the commercial world and skills you bring to the commercial world because of 22 years of service yes i think um I think I 
the, the leadership thing that we've already spoken about, yeah. which is, you know, sort of almost ingrained in you in the military anyway. Um, but uh, I think being able to relate to people, to be able to talk to people, to be able to have decent relationships. I mean, when you get to uh, MD level, everything is about relationships. People buy off people. Mm. People work for people. You know, it's all about how you treat and how you portray yourself to people. Um, so it's all around that sort of relationship and that personability. Now, in the military, because you're always dotting around, you have to get on with people, whether you particularly like them or not. It doesn't really matter, but you have to get on with them because you have to, you know, you have a yeah. job of work. So I think that really does help. Okay, those you know, personal skills. Personal, interpersonal skills, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, as well as the sort of leadership and all that sort of stuff. But the interpersonal skills that you learn within the army is um, something that's probably overlooked a lot. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. We've had a few ex-military, you know, on the podcast, but that's the first time somebody's reflected on that as an experience. That I can absolutely see it. From you, you know, you say, it, yeah. especially in in the job that I did in the military, where you would get posted on your own. So, yeah. um, if you join uh, maybe an infantry battalion, yeah. you will you will get posted all together. Yeah, you've got that camaraderie. Every, we are yeah. a team, kind of thing. Whereas, in my I was a helicopter engineer. You get moved around on your own. Um, You'll still see people that you know from previous, you know, postings and all that, but you're still getting dropped into these situations where you, you know, you've got to get on with people. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I think... Interesting. I think you've spoken a lot during the course of our conversation around communication, leadership style, and, and all of those kind of things. One of the challenges that I think we all face is being consistent. Yes, and I'm getting the impression that's probably one of your strengths. Yes. So how do you get that? How do you maintain that consistency? Okay, so I'm very, I'm very aware of how people view me. Yeah. Um, not in a, um, not in a way that is, um, you know, I'm tr- not trying to be up myself. You yeah, know, not egotistical. Not egotistical, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I'm very. So when I'm in a situation of stress when there's a lot of going on covid for example remaining calm remaining consistent i think is something that all leaders should be able to do Mm. i don't think you're going to be leading if you're stressing around running around with your head on fire you know you've just got to be very you may be having sleepless nights yeah but you shouldn't let that onto your uh, onto your team um, because they'll feed off it. Yeah, definitely. you know, if you're calm, if you're collected, if you've got a plan, yeah. however, you know, sort of rough that plan is, yeah. if they believe that you that you can get them through this, yeah, um, then they'll be on side, definitely. and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that's you know? definitely what you bring day in day out. Is exactly. however you're feeling inside. Show up. Show up uh, through it throughout the whole of the pandemic. So all of my office staff working from home two-thirds of my staff were um, furloughed I still went into the office every single day Um, because the guys who were working had to see that the boss was there yeah that was it I wasn't doing anything I was just drinking coffee in my office you know I mean there's nothing happening (laughs) but I had to get down on the shop floor make sure they all saw me you know make sure they could see I wasn't panicked make sure that I had a plan I didn't obviously nobody had a plan trying to work (laughs) one out but yeah (laughs) um uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's how you can really uh, lead. Yeah, you know, I, and I, I'm lucky because I can I've got probably a different perspective on stressful situations. Mm. 
I can safely say I've never been stressed since I left the army. Yeah. Things happen. You can't. Yeah. You know. So uh, yeah. Yeah, different perspective. Absolutely. I'm really also now intrigued to during the course of this conversation learn. You know, you've had that very much the Siemens, the corporate experience. Mm-hmm. You've had the PE mm-hmm. experience, and now effectively you've got owner managed family business. Yes. Now they're three completely different yes. environments. And I don't really know the question to ask, <laughs> I suppose, but it's, you know, what would you take as the benefits? Let's go positive. Mm-hmm. What would you take for the benefits from each of those three environments? Okay, so the big corporate, um, the benefit is that um, there's a huge amount of, of support. Yeah, resource support. Resource, you know, I mean... Uh, you you haven't got to think about things yeah. like that. Um, you need something; it happens. Um, so that's um, that's the, probably about the only positive. Actually, I don't think I could go back to the corporate world. I think okay. that would that would be difficult. I think it's too confining. Yeah, because um, although you've got that resource, you're following a path. You're and absolutely in, in, in that pigeonhole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in the, that's what you do. Yeah, don't step outside. Don't don't leave your pigeonhole. Um, the PE-backed um, business, that's uh, that's very interesting because um, that, obviously they want their pound of flesh. So um, slightly different to um, uh, to the corporate thing where if you need something, you can put forward a good business case and you can sit down and they can say, yes, we'll get some return off of that. So it's yeah. all about it's all ROI. About financial return. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so if it's, good, if it's a good idea and it gives you some return... Um, you'll more than likely get buying other things that don't give return yeah. building maintenance and things like that yeah. very very difficult Take to a get different view upon. Mm, mm. but it depends on where in the cycle they are mm. in the in the you know <laughs> yeah. if, they, if they just you came in late into the cycle so it would have been all about it was all numbers, of, numbers 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 absolutely absolutely but really really interesting to be yeah. part of that um so yeah and then where i am now um it's a, it's just a fight for everything, <laughs> but but it's not it's not bad, you know. It's um, we're very very lucky. Our owners are very stand standoff. Yeah. Um, they are more than happy to allow me to get on with the yeah. running of the business. So I'm very. And do you I'm feel more lucky. of a custodian for them? Yeah, I'm very aware it's their business. Mm. Very aware it's their business, and uh, you know we, I I owe it to them to be as careful with their business as as yeah. possible. Um, but I th- still think there there are opportunities where you have to take a certain amount of risk, mm. calculated risk, yeah. um, like the bogies for Sulza, for example, yeah. um, like the paint shop at Ironcroft. You know, yeah. we will start. We will be opening that over the next couple of months. You yeah. know, so yes, and that we could then lead to exponential growth again. Again, so it's all part of the growth plan. Yeah. So, uh, so many listeners of this podcast, you know, are owners of businesses themselves, may be thinking that they'll put in place, they'll step away slightly, you know, one mm-hmm. of their kind of optimization exit routes, maybe mm-hmm. actually take a back seat, run it as a lifestyle, you know, bring an MD in to push mm-hmm. the business forward. What hints and tips would you give to a business owner bringing in an MD for the first yeah. time? Okay. Um, don't be overly surprised if he wants to change some of the team. Yeah. Um, people have different ideas and, and people can get very uh, 
stagnant in their roles. Yeah. So if you've got, and I'm just taking this for an example, an FD who's been there for 20 years, yeah. a new MD who comes in might might decide that that FD is not up to the job. It depends really if, if the if the owner is looking to sell or is looking yeah. to grow or is just looking find out the purpose, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So so be very. Um, very direct with your incoming MD about what you want the business to look like in three years, five years, at least have a plan. Or if not, say, give me a plan. Mm -hmm. Allow him to go away and come back with a plan. Or if you want to sell it in five years or if you want it to sell it in three years, these make real big differences to how you run a business. Because if you want to sell it in three years, you've only got a short window Mm -hmm. in which to grow it to its maximum, steady it, because you're going to find it very difficult to uh, sell a business that has a massive spike in the last three years, yeah. you know, because it's it's going to fall. Prove its consistency and, yeah. and growth brings its own stresses and strains, particularly yeah. on things like culture and engagement and employee it's, retention. Exactly, it? exactly. And if you've only got a short space of time to do that, you need to be open and frank to the MD about that. If you just want to grow it, yeah, um, that's you know, with with no sort of end in sight, you know, that's that's another that's a nice position to be in actually because the MD gets his chance to get his feet under the table yeah. and really look under the hood of the business and and getting amongst it. Um, so yeah, just be open and honest about what you see is the future for your business. Um, the sort of, don't be surprised if a new MD, especially if you pick the right person, doesn't do the sort of norms. So, you know, if need be, I'll work Saturday, Sunday, you know, I don't book holiday. I'll take a holiday off when, when I can, you know, I, uh, so don't, Try and yeah. constrict him too much. Give him some freedom to be allowed to yeah. be creative. Particularly in a more entrepreneurial, again, owner-managed business. Exactly. I'm Ex- thinking more like you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's it, really. I, okay. I think, you know, as part of the um, interview process, make sure that you're open and honest. Yeah. Nothing worse than starting in, into a business like I did at Salter <laughs> and then opening the cupboard and see it's full of skeletons, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's it's nice if you walk into it with your full, you know, yeah, eyes knowing open. Knowing you've got the right fit and knowing why you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, what's next then for you and Iocroft? You know, where would you like to see the business in <coughs> three years' time? Um, three, so we've got, a, um, we've come through a period of being reactive. So uh, since I joined, we had COVID, so we were reacting to that. Then we reacted to the... Um, the ridiculous swings in material pricing. Of course. Um, We reacted to that. Um, We reacted to the fact that demand outstripped our our capacity. Um, So we reacted to that. We've now got onto the front foot. So we've now got a five-year growth plan, um, which will double the size of the business from two years ago. So, uh, and I think that's probably a little bit conservative, to be honest. So... Yeah, we'll we'll continue to expand. Uh, we'll we'll we are the largest employer now in Blanford. Um, right. We do a lot of, around Blanford now, so we're taking our corporate responsibility okay. uh, a and little bit. Employer brand as well. Employer brand, so we want to be the best employer okay. in the area. Um, we work closely with uh, Blanford School. Yeah. So I'm an enterprise advisor for Blanford School. I go in and help with their Gatsby scores and we have uh, work experience from the school. We've got 36 kids coming around at the end of June yeah. to do a walkthrough. Um, I go to the school and give talks. Um, and then we, me and my team on a Friday afternoon, we, we go en masse to the school and do their um, uh, interview practice. 
So yeah, for the kids, cool. brilliant. So giving back, yeah. Yeah, yeah we've got to give. We, Proper we, that's, CSR, yeah. in, in my view, is doing something in your local community that Absol- benefits all. Yeah, absolutely. And um, on Wednesday, last Wednesday, just gone, um, I was at Guy's Mars Prison talking okay. to their um, employability type yeah. people and seeing it, what we can do there. Um, we may be able to take one or two. Great. Um, uh, ex-offenders in so um, I'll be working with them we've only just started but I'll, I'll be working closely with them to see what we can do there as well so it's it's around you know it it's self-serving because yeah. obviously we get our name out there yeah. um, uh, but um, we do need to engage more with the local community and Brilliant. you know we had our 50th birthday bash in the crown in Blandford yeah um uh, 220 of my staff <laughs> so, so that was that was last summer so that was good fun again it's just using the local yeah, area resources and businesses yeah, and, absolutely. and being part of that community isn't it yep. so I always end with a, the same kind of final question which is a question around success so what is your personal definition of success Darren? oh dear I wish you'd asked me that before I came and sat in this seat <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think from from a personal point of view, I, I I do I do enjoy businesses being successful that I'm yeah. that I'm changing. So I get a real buzz from changing a business to to be successful, mm. and that's actually what I look for. That's what I look for with Hydreco, and that's what I looked for with with Iracroft yeah. to look at the potential for change, and then as that change comes about, you start feeling more and more successful, and you, yeah. you go down that sort of success path. Okay, that's um. Yeah, I think that's probably Good about it. And, and allowing people, allowing one thing I really have enjoyed at Ironcroft is allowing my team to do what they're supposed to do. You know, so yeah. I, I set the vision. I said, right, guys, this is I want a five year growth plan. Yeah. My sales guy look at the sales growth for five years. My FD does the the PNL for five years. My ops director realizes how many people he's going to need. They and they all come together, and we put it together, and there's the plan. Yeah. You know. And, all I've said is I want a five-year plan. That's it. Yeah. And I, I really enjoy people being able to get into that sort of role and enjoy doing what they're doing. Be yeah. part of it. Fantastic. If people want to learn more about you, Darren, more about Irocroft, where can they go? Okay. I'm all over LinkedIn. Um, we've got a nice new website for Irocroft. Uh, please have a look at that. Um, yeah. Uh, that's it, that's it, it the really. The normal places. The normal places, all the normal places. Brilliant, Dan. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's had a wide breadth. There's so much of value in the course of those responses you've given. I've really enjoyed, as I say, the conversation. Thank you for being a great guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you, Warren. Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us by rating, reviewing and subscribing. We really value your feedback and would love to have you along for future episodes. And please don't forget to learn more about Evolve by going to evolvemembers.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.